Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by Noah, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS. This is Radical Barbie Secrets and Lies in the Life and Work of Kathy Acker by Olivia Lang from the issue of November 25th, 2022. Olivia Lang's books include Crudo, published in 2018, and Everybody, a book about freedom, published in 2021. In the mid-1940s, the writer John Cheever moved to an apartment just off Sutton Place, a desirably ritzy street in midtown Manhattan, overlooking the East River. The mores of the neighborhood seeped into his fiction. One of his most famous New Yorker stories of the period, the Sutton Place story, concerns a wealthy family with a neglected only child, Deborah, who longs for love and eventually runs away, vanishing into the dark interstices of the city. I thought of this sentimental and disquieting story while reading Jason McBride's Eat Your Mind, a sumptuously detailed biography of the avant-garde novelist and all-around punk rock renegade Kathy Acker. From her birth in April 1947 until she left for college in 1964, she too was a resident of the neighborhood, living in an apartment on East 57th Street that was the double of Cheever's own, right down to its sunken living room. Acker could have emerged from the pages of the Sutton Place story. A child, likewise emotionally neglected and dangerously hungry for affection, who fled her rich and unsatisfactory family and escaped into a dirtier, wilder world. She even played in the same park as Deborah. The difference is that Kathy didn't come home, but went underground, periodically sending back fractured postcards from the sick interior of America. It will not surprise readers of her novels, with their slew of aliases and alter egos, Lori, Janie, The Black Tarantula, Toulouse-Lautrec, Rip-Off Red, Girl Detective, to learn that Kathy Acker wasn't her real name. She was born Karen Alexander, 
though even that turned out to be a malevolent fiction. The person she thought was her father, balding, boring Bud Alexander, had married her mother Claire while she was pregnant by a man who had abandoned her. This pregnancy was not an accident, but the bizarre suggestion of a doctor, who claimed it would cure the serious illness that Claire had developed in her early 20s. It was only after the baby was born that she received a more accurate diagnosis, appendicitis. Perhaps to punish this unwanted child, whom she had been too frightened to abort, Claire gave her a name she despised, Karen. Everyone called her Kathy. Claire was the beautiful, cosseted daughter of a wealthy Jewish immigrant who'd made his fortune as a glove manufacturer. He died when Kathy was still small, and the family was ruled by Claire's imperious mother, Flory, who supplied Bud with a job, controlled the family finances, and forced her adult daughter to return outfits of what she disapproved. As a child, Kathy knew none of this arcane history, only a mysterious sense of alienation and wrongness. Years later, in her first book, the self-published Politics, released in 1972, she wrote, I don't know who my father was. I don't know if my mother was married or not. I don't know if she wanted to have me or not. I don't know if she showed me she wanted me or not when I was a child, but I presume from irrational beliefs deep within me that she didn't. Then, a few lines down, Down with the family. The family is the worst evil in this country. It is the cause of evil everywhere. She finally discovered her real father's name by accident in 1974. Harry Lehman Jr. was the descendant of a family who had made a fortune in hair tonics. After tracking him down to California, she wrote a hesitant letter she perhaps never sent, suggesting a meeting and signing herself uncertainly, Yours, Kathy Alexander Acker, Karen Lehman. She still didn't know how to spell his name. It isn't clear whether they ever did meet, but in one of the novels that would both house and rework these hurtful, inconclusive episodes, she declared that he was a murderer who'd shot a trespasser on his yacht, skating from this revelation into a cut-and-paste paragraph from Virginia Woolf's Orlando. From the beginning, then, there was a hole in the narrative, a missing page in the family romance. Secrets and lies from the inheritance of many writers. Cheever was also an unwanted child whose mother had wanted to abort him, reinventing himself as an upper-crust family man. The assiduously buried knowledge that he was working-class and at least partially homosexual fueled his fiction, though also his alcoholism. As for Kathy, she learnt from the get-go that stories can't be trusted, that people lie and vanish, that life is not orderly and intelligible, but chaotic and pain-filled, information that she spent the rest of her life trying to convey to the outside world. This isn't to say her childhood was all misery— there was skating at the Rockefeller Center, pony riding, long summers at Atlantic Beach. She went to Lenox, a top-drawer private school in Manhattan, where she was remembered for being fast, smart, self-destructive, and dirty, appellations that would dog her right through adulthood. She lived inside her books, then later made a second home in sex, losing her virginity at 13, the same year she discovered she wasn't Bud's real daughter. Both were places to escape herself to find nourishment and connection. When I was a child, I always thought of books as more real than anything else, she once said. I had a bad childhood, and books really were my reality. Or again, in a drier mood, 
Books are the only people who like me. They were also mirrors in which she could discover herself as a romantic, tragic character with an infinite capacity for rebellion and reinvention. She was an orphan, a foundling, like Mull Flanders or Pip in Great Expectations, or the mutinous Jane Eyre. She felt an affinity with writers as well as characters who shared elements of her unsettled biography, thieves and outlaws such as Jean Genet and Arthur Rimbaud. Once she began to write herself, she pilfered from all these lives. In 1964, she went to the liberal arts college Brandeis, where she later claimed to have lived with Angela Davis, probably untrue. She also said she'd spent the preceding year hanging around avant-garde circles in downtown Manhattan, befriending Annie Warhol and the experimental filmmaker Jack Smith, though McBride suggests she was more witness than participant, a tongue-tied teenage wallflower peering in on Bohemia, still dressed in her school uniform. It was at Brandeis that she became Kathy Acker, marrying a history major, Robert Acker, known as Bob. She dropped out of college to follow him to the looser, cooler University of California, San Diego, scandalizing her parents, who cut off financial support. The happy-go-lucky suburban ocean scene, color, pastel, didn't exactly suit her but she finished her degree and took grad courses in literature and writing, which is where she encountered the poet David Anton. One of the revelations of Chris Krause's biography titled After Kathy Acker, published in 2017, was the role Anton played in the development of Acker's style. Despairing of the late adolescent expressionist poems his students were producing, he suggested that they spring themselves loose from reliance on their own perhaps limited biographies, by dint of a little light kleptomania. He set them an assignment. They could write about any subject they chose, but they had to go to the library and steal it from the writers who had got there first. Duchampian ready-mates, in short. A common practice in contemporary art, but shocking in literature, which even now overvalues so-called authentic voice and story over style and confuses appropriation with plagiarism. Acker was electrified. Even at high school, she had liked redeploying canonical material, making sophisticated collaged poems out of Romeo and Juliet. An echo of Anton's suggestion reverberates through all her mature work, which rivets together stolen fragments from many diverse sources, inventing a new and incandescent language from shards of Dickens, Cervantes, Harold Robbins, Pierre Guiotta, and the story of O. She wasn't collaging so much as ventriloquizing, speaking through many mouths, although the story that emerged often lingered forlornly around the familiar, painful landmarks of her own life. Vicious mother, absent father, lost little girl. In San Diego, Acker inaugurated a routine that lasted until her death. She was a notably committed writer, even when she was just typing up the apprentice work she called diaries, clocking a full six to eight hours nearly every day of her life. She didn't want to squander her time or energy laboring for someone else, but even the black tarantula had to eat. Her extra-literary CV is as short as it is succulent. Brief stints as a secretary and a sales girl at the Bethlehem Bakery, both of which ended in a walkout, forays into teaching, and a grimy spell in the sex industry, work she tumbled into when she returned to New York in 1970. Sex work is the final strand in the creation of Kathy Acker, girl novelist. It radicalized her understanding of how the world operates, 
how its politics apply on a bodily level, even more so than the multiple abortions and years of pelvic inflammatory disease that were a consequence of her private sexual adventures. As McBride puts it, it was akin, perhaps, to Simone Weil going to the factories. In the early 1970s, Acker worked as a stripper, shot porn films, and performed in a simulated sex show at Fun City in Times Square with a new boyfriend. Bob Acker had been permanently discarded in San Diego. The hours suited her, but she was nose to crotch with the patriarchy, and it didn't smell good. It changed my politics, she told an interviewer years later. You see it in a different way, especially power relationships in society, and I don't think that ever left me. Her first books emerged out of this willed descent into the underworld. Strange, self-published chapbooks, typed, photocopied, and stapled by hand. The Childlike Life of the Black Tarantula, published in 1973, was the fourth of these, though, as McBride observes, it also stands as the first of Acker's fully-fledged works. She started it in June 1973, mixing ruminations about her sex life, health, finances, and family, with sections lifted from the biographies of murderesses, transposed into the first person to create a weird, hysterical voice. In later episodes, she variously assumed the identities of Yates, the Marquis de Sade, and characters from pornographic novels. These books were tonally original and idiosyncratic, but not wholly without antecedents. Part of the agenda of Chris Krause's biography was to draw back the curtains on Kathy the Star, showing the extent of the supporting cast. McBride, too, is at pains to demonstrate that she wasn't totally sui generis, despite aggressive propaganda drives to the contrary, but part of a nourishing community whose support she later declined to acknowledge. For example, David Anton's wife, the conceptual artist Eleanor Anton, gave Acker her own mailing list for Black Tarantula. It included the addresses of artists such as Ed Ruscha and Carolee Schneeman and Lawrence Wiener, furnishing Acker with a sophisticated and ready-made audience. There were six tarantulas in total, written over a single year. They may have dealt with chaotic material, but Acker had a clear rationale for what she was up to artistically. In a letter to a skeptical friend, she set out her intentions, providing a lucid key to her future work, too. In her words, I don't write mainly about myself, though I use the word I, rather than the second or third person. I use basically found material, material written by other people. About one-fourth of the tarantulas, if that much, contains autobiographical material. I'm interested in my relations to other people, my possibility of getting outside of myself. Since I'm interested in this as a real problem, I don't make up people, because then I'd be dealing with my own thoughts— I try to use the thoughts, etc., of real people. I'm not interested in self-expression. By the time she wrote Great Expectations, published in 1982, the first of her books not to be self-published, Acker truly was an orphan. Bud had died of a heart attack in 1977, and afterwards, mother and daughter began tentatively to speak again. This rapprochement was going to be cemented by a family dinner on Christmas Eve 1978, hosted by Claire. But a few days before the gathering, she vanished. Kathy was frantic. It was days before she found out that Claire had checked into the Midtown Hilton and killed herself, leaving instructions for the care of her poodle, but no note for her daughter. 
It later transpired that there was $23.69 in her savings account and that she owed money at Bloomingdale's and Saks, among other places. How do you handle an inheritance of such inadequacy and desolation? Acker tried various techniques. S&M was sometimes helpful as a way of managing bad feelings. Receiving controlled doses of pain, humiliation, and abjection from various lovers could leave her feeling temporarily lighter, a form, as McBride puts it, of simultaneously self-affirmation and self-annihilation. Writing, too, was a contradictory space where she could experiment with mechanisms of annihilation and escape. As her friend-slash-enemy, Gary Indiana, once observed, Acker's writing is impelled by contradictory needs, the need to survive through writing, and the need to be nothing. One sometimes gets the sense, particularly in Blood and Guts in High School, published in 1984, and Empire of the Senseless, published in 1988, of a writer self-harming by way of torturing her own surrogates, her helpless paper ghosts, who are raped, beaten, pissed on, and betrayed in book after book after book. Unsurprisingly, these novels never brought in a lot of money. The lifetime American sales for Blood and Guts, her biggest seller, amount to 38,089 copies. And after 1981, she didn't need them to. Like her new surrogate, Pip, Kathy came into a fortune. After Flory died, she and her half-sister, Wendy, each inherited a lump sum of $100,000, plus equal shares in a trust of about $735,000. Her annual income from it was $40,000, $128,000 in today's money. This newfound wealth was, Kathy being Kathy, a source of torment as well as liberation. It bought her places to live, McBride details a bewildering array of flats in London, New York, and Brighton, and delicious things to wear, but it didn't protect her or compensate for what was actually lacking. She still felt naked and unloved. She still had bad reviews. Men continued to abandon her. I'm going to tell you something, she wrote self-mockingly in Great Expectations. The author of the book you are now reading is a scared little shit. Fame was a potential armor, like the puke-green paper hospital robe in which she dresses her Don Quixote. Being a woman, her night's ordeal is an abortion. McBride is very keen on the words famous and famously. President Ford famously tells the city of New York to drop dead. Burroughs famously desires to storm the reality studios. Dickens is the most famous of all English-language novelists, and Acker once moved into a flat in Islington with such famous neighbors as Peter Ackroyd and Douglas Adams. If the constant reiteration strikes an odd note while dealing with the intellectual content of Acker's work, there's no doubt that fame was a growing preoccupation, meshing uneasily with her more esoteric investigations into narrative and identity. She may have spent her days writing in a bathrobe, but by the early 1980s, she had honed a seductive public self. The Acker look was pure underground Barbie, an urchin with cropped hair and huge bush baby eyes, her tiny tattooed bodybuilder's frame draped in expensive punk-inflected outfits from Vivian Westwood, Gautier, and Comte des Garçons. She possessed an exceptional facility for commanding a room, behaving more like a rock star than a writer in her quest for attention. Fellow performers were infuriated by the way she routinely disregarded time limits or insisted on reading last. Several of those quoted complaining here have told me similar stories. 
After a group tour around Germany in 1991, the poet Eileen Miles described herself ruefully as the backup singer for Kathy Acker's fucking tattoos. If fame promised to be a plausible surrogate for love, the tragedy of Acker's later years, at least according to this account, is that its fanatical pursuit left her increasingly isolated and alone. By 1984, she was being published by Grove Press in the U.S. and Picador in the U.K., her truculent angel face emblazoned on the jackets. She was the subject of a South Bank show documentary. She had finally become a celebrity, and the consequence was that half her old friends couldn't bear to be in a room with her. It's hard to know what's more dismal about this period, the spectacle of Acker at the Groucho, clinking glasses with Julie Burchill and Martin Amos, or the recursive cycle of transgressive self-parody in which her writing became arrested. It was the 1980s, after all. McBride has a nice phrase for Acker's novels. He calls them unusually inhospitable to their readers. They're full of booby traps and unexpected detonations, shifting registers all the time. Sometimes the shocks are hokey and predictable. Like an end-of-the-pier ghost train, you don't necessarily want to ride for long. Her need to disrupt narrative at all costs can veer into shtick, or worse, suggest an absence of new ideas. But I don't think Indiana was quite right when he suggested that whatever else she was doing with language, she wasn't communicating with readers. What Acker did, and did more powerfully than any other novelist I can think of, is find a way of conveying with language the sense of being lost inside it, of being isolated and adrift, trapped in a labyrinth of dead ends and false leads. Despite the pervasive, bleakly funny gag routines, sadness roils from the page. There are certain similarities to Marguerite Duras, who also endlessly reworked her Lost Girl biography, playing with estranging repetitions as she mapped the darker aspects of sex and identity. A better comparison, though, is with the playwrights Samuel Beckett and Sarah Kane, the latter of whom was likewise accused of shock-value transgression for her investigations into violence and war. The fact that these states of pain and isolation are recognized by other people, and especially by the politically and socially dispossessed, explains why Acker's writing has retained its eerie, uncanny power long after her fame-seeking antics have lost whatever cachet they may once have had. After I read Chris Krause's biography in 27, I wrote a novel, Crudo, which applied Acker's tactics of piracy to her own work. I summoned her into the present day, stealing elements of her biography and splicing her words with mine, just as she had done to so many writers of the past. In the Trump years, reality had become as unstable as Acker always claimed it was. Truth was a corpse in the water, justice a bad joke. Her possessed, protean voice was the only way I could find accurately to report on what this felt like. The baleful, incantatory tone of her writing, its litany of atrocities interspersed with trivia and gossip, felt a lot closer to life as it was unfolding than the marriage plots and clattering silver forks of the realist novel. Acker was 50 when she died, hopelessly young. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer in 1996, submitting to a double mastectomy and refusing any further conventional treatment, putting her faith instead into a retinue of alternative healers. A line from Empire of the Senseless captures something of the atmosphere of her later years, the sense of being trapped and at bay. 
I who would have and would be a pirate, I cannot. I who live in my mind, which is my imagination as everything, wanderer, adventurer, fighter, commander-in-chief of allied forces, I am nothing in these times. Both Krauss and McBride counterbalance her untimely and confusing death, though what death isn't really, with a rousing account of the writers and artists she inspired. McBride finds his justification for this approach in a scene near the end of Blood and Guts in high school. After Janie finally dies, exhausted by the torments to which she has been submitted, Acker writes, Soon many other Janies were born, and these Janies covered the earth. I always found that line weirdly reminiscent of the end of E.B. White's classic children's book, Charlotte's Web, in which the death of Charlotte, the benevolent spider, is followed by the supposedly compensatory mass hatch of her babies. If the proliferation of thousands of Janies isn't actively ironic, then it's just as unsatisfactory a response to loss. I don't think Acker's value is founded in what she inspired in other people. Her primary role was not as an animateur. It's those weird, unreadable, unforgettable books that count. Books that are like being lost in a library in the last days of a long and devastating war. You have been listening to the TLS. This was Radical Barbie, Secrets and Lies in the Life and Work of Kathy Acker by Olivia Lang from the issue of November 25th, 2022. It was read by Adrian Walker for Noah. The article you just listened to was narrated by the team at Noah. Continue listening to more great journalism on the Noah app or by visiting newsoveraudio.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.